How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Smarts and Strikes Podcast. We cover every bump, every spot, and chat with all the talent around the world of wrestling. Here's your host, Bill Matz, former WWE referee Kevin Keenan, and Eric Golden. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Smarks and Stripes podcast. Of course, my name is Bill Matz. I am joined by former WWE referee Kevin Keenan, and today we are interviewing Mr. Kennedy. No, Mr. Anderson. Ken Anderson joins us on Smarks and Stripes uh, for a great interview. You're really going to enjoy it. Uh, so without further ado, here is Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson, what's going on, Ken? How are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Did I nail your intro? I know you're the you're the master of it. I'm just trying to pay a little homage. You got to use your diaphragm a little more. <laughs> I'll have to work on that one. Uh, Ken, we have, we have a ton to talk about, uh, but let's start here. The industry's in a crazy period right now, uh, and among all the things going on, NWA just a little while ago was an afterthought, but suddenly, after the uh, premiere of Power on YouTube, I have to say, I think it's getting the highest approval rating of all the stuff that's happening in wrestling right now. Uh, You just recently popped up in NWA. Tell me about your experience so far there, and uh, what it's like to be in this what's old is new again concept. Uh, So far, so good. Everything's been great. Um, I've I've appreciated and enjoyed working with Dave Lagana and Billy Corgan in the past. At, at w, uh, I worked with Dave at WWE and TNA, and Billy I worked with at TNA, and like I always got along well with all of them. Um, and I believe that you know the the greatest thing about the company right now, in my mind, is the ability they're giving wrestlers the ability to kind of sink or swim on their own accord. We go into a production meeting. We we go over the entire day's events, and the the promos are not detailed. They're not written out word for word. It's just like bullet points. Hey, here's what we here's the point that we're trying to get across here. However, you guys get there, you know, we'll leave that up to you. So it's it's really kind of cool, and uh, I'm enjoying my work as both a producer and talent. And uh, it leads for some very stressful days trying to, you know, uh, I had several segments over the course of the two days just that I was involved in. And then I had a few segments that I actually produced. So um, we taped nine episodes over a two-day period. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Ken, you left TNA about uh, about three and a half years ago now. And since then, you've, you've kind of kept a, a bit of a low profile. And we'll get into what you're doing now here. Uh, in, in just a little bit, but uh, were you always interested in getting another run someplace? Was this just a right place, right time, right fit kind of thing? How did you land in the NWA? Well, um, I'm always in two minds about it. I, I do. I would like another run somewhere. Um, I don't feel like I'm 
I'm done yet. I'm closer to the end of my career than I am to the beginning of it. But, uh, but I have kids and I'm dealing with, you know, trying to co-parent with uh, an ex-wife and, you know, being on the road full time means that I would see my kids even less than I already do. So that, that is something that I would have to, if I were given an opportunity somewhere, I would really have to consider, you know, how I would navigate that if I could navigate it at all. But the thing about um, the NWA is, you know, it was two days out of my time. Uh, we have another series of events coming up here in December, December 14th, 15th, and 16th. Another three days, uh, one pay-per-view, and two days of tapings. So it's a very easy schedule, and it happens to fall on a weekend where I don't have my kids. Um, so that's not a problem for me at all. And it was, um, it was actually Nick Aldis that reached out to me and said, "Hey, I want to bring you on board of this thing. I'm going to put your name out there." And uh, you know, he threw my name in the ring. And like I said, I already had a relationship with Billy and Dave, and. They gave me the opportunity, so I'm I'm very uh, thankful for it. Ken, I want to jump back to what you're doing in NWA just for a second. Do you have a? Did you have prior to this experience as a producer elsewhere? Is this a new a new thing for you? No, I didn't. The only sort of producing that I've done was, uh, you know, I've run two shows on my own. I promoted two shows. Um, well, not on my own, but with uh, with you know, co-producers, co-promoters, but they were very successful and I uh, had a ton of fun doing them. And I'm also, you know, not to spoil, not to give away any spoilers or anything, but, uh, you know, I'm running my academy. So I've been coaching and dealing with people for the last three years, every single, you know, five days a week. And it just feels like a natural fit now. Uh, NWA is taking such a unique approach. It's uh, so different from what we're seeing throughout the landscape of wrestling. It's an old idea that's become new again, like I said in the intro. Did you grow up watching studio wrestling? Were you always a fan of this format? Like, uh, how, do you, how did you feel about it before you started uh, with NWA? Uh, I didn't. I mean, I, I obviously I, I didn't grow up as a wrestling fan, but when I fell in love with the business, I realized that I had been missing out on all this great stuff for years, and I, I sort of did my homework and I watched as much as I possibly could. So I've seen studio wrestling before. And there was a, when I first broke into the business, um, there was a, I can't remember who, what the promotion was. It's escaping my memory right now, but there was one in Memphis that uh, a bunch of my friends and coworkers sort of worked on. And I was always trying to get a, get to be a part of those. I never actually never did it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that the fact that they're bringing back the studio wrestling, it's, um, it's a different animal. It really is. You know, you're playing to one side, and the crowd is behind you. If you're looking at it from the hard camera's perspective, like the camera, you're, you're looking away from the crowd. It's a really awkward position to be in. Kevin, Kevin knows this from being at WWE events where, you know, sometimes WWE wouldn't fill up an arena. There would only be half the tickets sold in a 5,000 seat arena. So they would jam everybody on one side and they would tarp off the hard camera side. And you would have to play towards that hard camera for a majority of the, of the time for the, you know, important high spots and things like that. But uh, oh. the other thing that I found really interesting about this, and I was 
skeptical at first was the, the no music. We have no entrance music at, T, at NWA. Um, you just, they call your name and you come out and you get to the ring. And it's, I, I thought we've just become so accustomed to seeing this big entrance for everybody. Uh, I didn't know how it was going to play. And I, it turns out I love it. It works well. And it, it feeds the process up. You know, I, I feel like if you go to an independent show, half the show is entrances. And may, that might be the, the case in uh, WWE, too, or any other promotion for that matter. You know, it's funny. I always do mention to people, uh, you know, speaking with Bill when we do the podcast or other co-hosts isn't with us today, but I always mention it's, o- it's always okay to, to work to the people that are in the arena. You're there to give them a show, but the most important people are on the other side of the lens. Those are the people. Uh, there are so many more people on the other side of the camera lens uh, that are watching you and you have a product to sell. It's, I, th- I think it's really important that you brought that up. Uh, hey, we mentioned a few minutes ago about how this business is is in a crazy place right now. And about a year ago, Ken, there was only really one place to work, and now there's like seven. It's, it, it, it's actually pretty crazy, which is a, which is a plus for, for all the guys and girls. But real quick, I want to talk with you uh, about AEW for a second. You and I obviously both know a lot of the guys involved in the inner workings of this company, and given the experience that some of them have, is there an, are, are, do they have a legitimate shot to be an alternative or even be on the WWE's radar? Uh, absolutely. I, I think you're already seeing it. I mean, do you look at AEW? Like, I haven't watched religiously, but the what I have seen, they're filling up arenas every week. You know, I mean that that it's really it's impressive. Is impressive, and that hasn't been seen since WCW. You know, Impact. For I, I love my time at Impact, but we were filling. We weren't even filling up. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know how many people it was exactly, but I think there was about maybe 750, 800 yeah. max capacity at the impact zone. Sure. And now you're seeing these giant arenas being filled up. And there's so much talent, and these guys have gone off on their own. It's like, look, look at what Cody and the Bucks have done. The, the Bucks were basically, you know, given the middle finger by certain uh, people in the yeah. industry, and and like these guys are never gonna. They're never going to get over, uh, and then they went out and they proved everybody wrong. Cody decided, I'm not happy where I'm at. Instead of bitching about it, I'm going to go and do something about it. And and he really took the bull by the horns, and he created his own destiny. I want to veer off track for a second real quick because you said something that, and it popped into my mind. You mentioned the impact zone and how for a long time the impact zone was 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 TNA's, was TNA's home. That's where they did TV. But being there so often, the crowd kind of got stale and lukewarm to the product. Do you think NXT in time is in danger of doing the same thing if they don't get their television show out on the road? I, I you know, I guess logically you would you would jump to that conclusion. However, you look at how long has NXT been around now? Right, three four years, and they're still going strong at that one arena. Yeah, you know. So I think as long as they continue to put out a product that people want to see, people are going to come. So when we look at the business today, it's it, it's so much different uh, than when I met you back in 2005. It's even, it's even different than it was five years ago. And I think a lot of that 
uh, has to do with the way social media is being used. And, of course, guys, if you're not following Ken on Twitter, please do so at Mr. Ken Anderson. Uh, I've stated time and time again that when I came into the WWE system was when I really, truly learned how to work. It's where I really understood the business, learned sympathy for a baby face, how to get heat on a heel, tell a good story. Three key points, Ken, in getting over with a crowd. Social media and Twitter in general, I think, has made it harder for at least two of those points to be properly accomplished. In your opinion, what is the role of social media in today's wrestling business? Well, I mean, the reality is that if you have an idea, uh, a lot of times when we have ideas in our heads, and we present them to other people. The other, we either don't do a good job of relating that to people, um, getting them to see our vision, and a lot of times, you know, it just falls on deaf ears or it appears to fall on deaf ears. And in this day and age, we now have the ability to, if I have an idea and I can't get it across to anybody else, I can just do it myself. Mm-hmm. I can take my phone that has an amazing high definition camera on it and uh, an edit like crazy editing software. And I can put together videos on my own and pump them out to the world. You know, you see this over and over again. Um, I think really, I I don't think there's one specific thing that social media is good at. It's it's self-promotion. I do, however, feel like sometimes, in self-promotion, guys get a little too caught up in this fantasy world, mm-hmm. I guess. And it's sort of, uh, you know, like I, I hate seeing gym selfies and shit like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's just this constant uh, look at how cool my life is. Yeah. You know, it's really, there's more to life. And, and people say it all the time that, what you see on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is not reality in people's worlds. Like people don't show the bad parts of their, of it, their world. It's a double-edged sword, uh, in my opinion, in many ways. In many ways, social media really is the dumpster of society. But on the flip side of that, it's the greatest free form of advertising you're ever going to get. Absolutely. Hey, let's no, let's, absolutely. let's jump back. I will say that with running my academy, I have spent very little money on advertising like we're talking you you would laugh at how much money i probably spent maybe two hundred dollars over wow. the course of three years and i've had 260 students come through our doors we're definitely gonna you know? uh, we're definitely gonna talk about the academy here in a little bit i do want to get to that with you but i do want to uh, jump back into you here a little bit uh you left tna about almost four years ago and it seems now that the uh impact as it's known has somewhat as they somewhat made a resurgence from what it was left to in the Dixie Carter era, now being ran by Scott Demore and Dodd Callis, do you like the way that the Anthem Group, along the way with Scott and Don, have come in and kind of righted a lot of the wrongs that were made in the Dixie era and turned the ship around to make it into a contender again? It seems to me that they've done all the right things. And, uh, you know, aside from getting a bigger platform, uh, you know, that's I, I, I really feel like that's, where they need to go now is uh, they're using lesser known guys and that's great. Um, um, but I, I, yeah, I, definitely. I agree with you. A, uh, a big talking point right now is the viability of other, uh, other companies to compete with WWE. And we just touched on it with AEW, but when you left WWE, it seemed like, 
TNA was gaining some momentum in that regard. Uh, they would made some big signings, and then you become one of them. When you went over to a TNA Impact, did you do it simply because this is the only other game in town in terms of being a full-time wrestler, or did you honestly believe, hey, this, is, this could be something special, this could compete with WWE? I think it was both. I think I didn't have any other options, really. And when I did get there, I did think this this could be something. I mean, we used to get those rah-rah speeches every three to six months from Dixie and the crew and whoever was running the ship at the time. Um, I went through several while I was there. But we would get the rah-rah speech, and every time I left there thinking, yes, we can do this. Um, and it just never seemed to quite get off the ground, you know? Yeah, it, it did. It's uh, as, like, your era of leaving WWE and going to TNA, that's when I'm becoming, like, 16-year-old internet fan. You were the example of, look, at he's an underutilized guy. They're going to use him in TNA, and it's going to be great. But it just never seemed like the company as a whole to get off, off, to get off the ground. But now I want to ask, with so many options out there, Raw and NXT on USA, SmackDown's on freaking uh, Fox now, AEW, you know, NWA, Impact's on Access. There's streaming networks everywhere. Do you think we're on the verge of another boom period? Do you think it could ever get to where it was during the Attitude Era prior to your time? Uh, yes, I do think so. I hope so. I mean, I hope that happens soon. I, I feel like we are on the verge of it. It's just that something, I feel like something needs to be different. There's, and I do see it in the in the presentation, like what, what uh, Billy and Dave are doing at NWA. Um, but I'll also like, some of the things that have driven me crazy about the wrestling business is everything always takes place in the arena. Why? There's so much more out there. I, I realize it requires people to go on the road and travel with cameras and, you know, set locations and shoot locations or something like that. But like even following guys around with a video camera on their road trips. I mean, there's, you know what I'm saying? Like stay, take the story out into the world. And I feel like, there was a recap show that I saw for AEW, one of the pay-per-views, and they were showing, like, Cody going in to sign the contract. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they were, they were showing things outside of the arena. Um, why do we always use, when, when somebody's getting interviewed or, or there's a confrontation between two guys, there's always one camera, and we have to stand at this really awkward position and blade ourselves in the, in the position that you would never actually assume sure. if you were talking to somebody. Um, instead of having a camera shooting over my shoulder, looking at my opponent, and, and then another camera shooting over his shoulder, looking at my face, and switching back and forth. I, require, I know that requires a lot of post-production and stuff, but I, you know, the use of music. It's, we, we only use music for entrances and exits. And the the show open and things like that but like you know music is very powerful in the art of storytelling um, you know they always said if you watch halloween i think halloween's a terrible movie to begin with but <laughs> it, just, it doesn't hold up i just recently watched it as a part of a 100 movies bucket list and i was blown away by how bad it was but if you watch that without the music it's even worse sure 
and it was when they added that soundtrack, it just completely transformed the way that you viewed. So those are kind of things that I feel like need to occur. It needs to be presented in a different format. There needs to be a change. And too many people are doing just slight variations of what the WWE is doing. And I always, I hate the, the I realize that it's a natural occurrence. We're going to talk about competition with the WWE, but I feel like, you know, locally independent promotions, uh, one promoter will say, Hey, if you go work for this other guy down the road, I won't use you anymore. Which is insane. And things like that. Um, just put on a better product. Sure. Just literally put on a better, quit worrying about competition just put asses in the seats whatever way that you can do it instead of worrying about what other people are doing is my opinion so hey i want to jump back uh a little bit all the way back uh, i can i can say at least for me um getting signed by wwe was a dream come true i know it is for most people uh, i was 20 when i got hired i have to check i have to check this bill i still think i'm the youngest ref ever signed i'd have yeah. to, I'd, I'd have to check that out but ken for you as a wrestler uh, I would say your path was much different than mine. Can you uh, tell us a bit about the process of getting hired as a wrestler and how you found out WWE was going to be bringing you in? I mean, it was it was tough. It was six years of doing independence, getting books every weekend, this you know, and trying to to learn. And then I would send tapes to. I remember I sent. I, I started in '99. I my first match in January of 1999. And I sent my first tape to WWE like probably six to nine months into my career. And I got a call back from Kevin Kelly. And Kevin brought me in to do, you know, it was Raw and SmackDown mm-hmm. as an extra. And then it just, from that point, I just kept in touch. And I would send another tape every six months. And I would constantly call and ask if there were opportunities. And I, like I said, I did that for five, six years. I did that with TNA. Um, and then it was just, as I was going, I was learning and making relationships, creating relationships. And, uh, I, I didn't know anybody when I, when I broke in sure. you know, other than the people that trained me. Um, and my trainers weren't really connected either. They were awesome trainers and they knew what they were talking about. They, they just weren't connected. That's just the reality of it. Um, and then I was. I got hired. I went to. I went to OVW. I was there for five or six months, just kind of trying to find my way. Um, and then Paul Heyman came down. Paul Heyman pulled me aside on the first day and said, "You're the next guy out of here. I'm going to do so much with you. We're going to. I promise you, you're going to be the next guy out of here." And five weeks later, he had done so much with me and shown such a spotlight on me that. WWE brought me in for a look. They brought me up to a, a set of tapings, and uh, I was going to have a match with Funaki. It was going to be a dark match. He was going over. He was going to win. And uh, I remember five minutes before the match, I was I was standing outside a grill position, doing push-ups, getting ready, getting pumped up. And Vince walked by, and he never walks by. He would never go and sit up a gorilla position to watch the you know, the opening matches or, you know, jacked your metal or Sunday night heat or any of that stuff. And, uh, he just nodded at me. And then like a minute later, Dave Lagana came up to me and said, 
hey, there's been a change. You, we need to come up with a finisher for you. Um, this is going to be a televised match and welcome aboard. Basically just, that was it. And I went out and I think I had a good outing with Funaki. I came back to the curtain and I got the big thumbs up from the boss. And uh, I remember Arn Anderson was my, I think, I think it was Fit, it was Fit Finley that was uh, the agent on that match. Uh, but Fit and Arn came over to me and Arn said, you just got yourself a job, kid. And so that was really cool. And then from that point forward, the next four years of my life is an absolute whirlwind. And it, it goes from you wanting to be there to you're doing phoners on your days off and you're yeah. working you know, three days of house shows, all the travel, you're working TV, you're working the pay-per-views, uh, you're doing other interviews and things like that on your days off. It's just, it was just a crazy whirlwind of travel and fun and hard work over the next, you know, at least four years when I was in WWE. Your debut was actually uh, one of my questions here on, uh, on my rundown here because it's so funny. I was supposed to be your referee for that dark match. Um, I remember when they pulled you out and you were getting ready to, uh, they told you you were going to make your debut, literally, Bill, with five, with five minutes to go, and they put uh, Deuce from Deuce and Domino in the dark match with Funaki. Um, or no, yeah, they did. They put Deuce in, and he five minutes to get changed, he comes running down, um, and you know Ken was making his debut in the whole thing. Uh, uh, that was actually August 2005, Columbus, Ohio. Um, it's so crazy that this was during the time when I was on my extended tryout. I was doing like six weeks in a row there, um, working out with all the guys there in the afternoon. It was uh, it was certainly an experience for a for a twenty year old uh, twenty year old Kevin Keenan. I, I do want to jump back into OVW real quick, uh, Ken. Hey, hey, real quick, I have to say thank you because I that is one thing I I have a hard I have a very poor memory and I've always. I knew it was in Ohio. I just couldn't remember exactly where it was. It so was thank Col- you. it was Columbus, Ohio, August two thousand five, the Nationwide Arena. You know, I, I don't know how many people do this, but for ev- I, I still have my book. Every match that I ever did in the WWE, I have written down. I have, I had, wow. I had the date. I have whether it was a house show, whether it was television, pay per view, whatever. Who the match was, who went over. Um, I kind of got that idea from Jim Cornette. From watching, you know, from watching his videos back in the day, he did all that when he was on the road with the Rock and Roll Express, and he sure. he did all of the finishes and the houses and the payoffs and all that stuff. I didn't go that far, but as long as I had all of the information, um, that was good for me. So I kind of went back and, and took a look at this before we uh, before we hopped on here. Uh, you mentioned OVW, and I'm glad you did. OVW for me, uh, I am so fond of my time in OVW. Uh, you were down there for a little while, Ken. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I'm sure you do, but there was an, I forget who was involved, but there was an awesome pre-tape where there's this huge brawl outside the Davis Arena, uh, and somehow you hit the Mr. Anderson, you hop in the car, you drive off, you come back, you drive, drives off and drives back to hit the second Anderson. (laughs) I laugh every, to this day, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I laugh Uh. every single time I watch this pre-tape. It was just it was pure gold. Uh, my question is, can you take me through the thought and creative mindset behind Mr. Anderson and what ultimately turned into Mr. Kennedy? I mean, the, the character, I guess, yeah. was just me me with the volume turned up. You know, it was if I ever got into arguments or fights or anything like that, I, I turned into that person. <laughs> like, um, and, and it was sort of a, a blend of, 
my experiences in the world feel like I was in the military. I went through boot camp. The drill sergeants were some of were a sources of constant entertainment and inspiration for sort of the way that I carried myself. Um, so there's probably a little bit of that in there. And uh, but Paul Heyman came down, and his first night, I believe, he he told me, uh, "Go out there and announce your cut the cut the ring announcer off." The ring announcer at the time was Dean Hill. And he said, "Cut him off." run him down and do your own introduction. And so I did it. And I said my last name twice because I was just recalling back to when I was in high school, I was a basketball announcer and I used to do that for the teammates, for the teammates. And uh, you always just got like such a positive reaction. I remember parents from the opposing teams would come over and say like, that's really funny when you do that. Uh, I really love it. I know you don't do it for our team, but like, it's cool that you do it for your team. Things like that. So I just hit the last name twice. I came back to the curtain and everybody was like, that was awesome when you said that. And I feel like you you know, Kevin, you can attest to this, that when the boys pop for something, the crowd is going to pop for it too. Uh, 100%. We're, we've seen everything, you know. Um, we're completely cynical. And so that was just sort of, uh, yeah, every week I just kind of ramped it up and ramped it up. I remember... Right before Paul came down, I had dyed my hair blonde because Steve Turn came down one day and I had brown hair and just a regular goatee. And Steve Turn said, like, I like your work. Uh, you have a great look, but you just look like a normal guy. And he said, I believe that if you want to be successful in this business, you should be the guy that when you walk into a restaurant and sit down, people look over at you and say, I don't know who that guy is, but he's something. Like he does something cool. And I bleached my hair and I bleached my goatee. And I remember Cornette was pissed about it. And he was like, um, as sort of punishment, he wasn't really pissed about it. You know, he just, I hadn't gotten approval and I hadn't talked to him about it. And he thought it was stupid. And so he stuck me, his, his idea of punishment was he stuck me with the blonde bombers. It was a bunch of blonde people. It was, uh, uh, I think Melissa Coates was in the group, um, and it was Hank Toland and uh, Chad Chad Wicks. You remember those guys? Yeah, that guy. Yep, uh, and they ended up going up to the main roster, being the Dicks. Yes, yep. And I he gave me an opportunity to cut a promo, and I just said, "Fuck it." I'm, I'm sorry. Can I swear in this? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Uh, I just said, fuck it, and I went out there, and I was like, this is my one opportunity I'm going to get on this show, and I completely went ballistic on the on the promo and let my character come through. And I came back to the curtain, and I remember Jim Cornette going, where has that guy been? And uh, so from that point forward, I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep ramping this up, and that character got more colorful and more colorful, which in the end – um, was my downfall at WWE or one of my downfalls because it was it got so over the top and so cartoony and uh, but that's a story for another time um, I forget where I was going with this <laughs> well alright Ken I want to take you into uh, into that whirlwind that you describe as your life you know on the main roster you got hot on the main roster for a while they put the uh, money in the bank on you and I believe you were supposed to go over on the on the Undertaker, uh, if the rumor and innuendo is uh, is true, but an injury kind of puts a halt to that push. 
Can you kind of take us through that time period? Uh, were you privy to the plans after you were supposed to maybe win the world title? How everything went down from that point on with the injury? And uh, do you think that's when your momentum really kind of stopped on the main roster? Um, so uh, I just spoke with this, spoke about this yesterday with somebody. Uh, I spoke with Grado yesterday. I was doing his podcast and we talked about this. Um, I won the money in the bank and we talked creatively. And the idea that Michael Hayes had come up with was that I would announce on the next Raw or SmackDown uh, that I was going to cash in my money in the bank briefcase at WrestleMania the following year. And that was the plan going forward. And then fast forward just a few months, Undertaker got hurt. I think he tore his biceps and he needed to have surgery. So I, you know, I was, I was riding with Matt Hardy and we had left the arena early, which we never did. But we left like 10 minutes while the main event dark match was going on. And at that time, that was pretty taboo, like something you didn't want to do. But we were just like, we're, we're out of here. Nobody's going to catch us. And I got a call from Michael Hayes a few minutes later saying, like, where are you? The boss wants to talk to you. So oh, we turned around, went back, and I walked down the hallway. And I remember walking down the hallway. It was right outside Vince, Vince's door. And Batista came out, and he looked at me, and he just gave me a big hug. And he was like, congratulations, dude. I was like, what do you mean? And it, by what he said, I sort of reasoned what was what was coming. But uh, I just played dumb, you know. And he, he just said, don't worry about it. Like, you'll find out in a minute. So I walked in the door, and it was Vince and Stephanie, and, you know, he basically went through the idea that Taker was hurt. They had planned on him being the champion for a really long time, but because he was injured, um, they needed to get the title off to him. And the idea was next, next, uh, this was on Tuesday night that they told me this next Tuesday night, SmackDown, you're going to come out and uh, challenge you know, they didn't, they didn't really know exactly how that was going to transpire at the time, but they just said, like, you're going to challenge Taker and you're going to cash in your money in the bank briefcase and win it, and you'll be the new champion. And they said, really, we, we feel like Batista um, is a great champion, and, uh, but, but we feel like when he has it, the title for too long, it, it just becomes a little stale, and it's always good when he's on the hunt. And so we want to... I think that's you know, an extremely accurate, fair assessment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they said, you know, as long as the hunt is going well for him and he's doing well with fan response, we'll keep it on you. But when that starts to dip, we're going to put it back on, on Dave. You know, great, fantastic. The next That night I went out to dinner and a couple bars with Michael Cole and Mark Toronto. And because we were friends, we hung out occasionally, and they were the only people besides uh, Vince, Stephanie, and Michael Hayes that really knew what was going on. And they were just like, kid, you fucking did it. You know, congratulations. And I was trying to play it low, but, you know, we, I imagine they bought a couple rounds of celebratory shots that <laughs> night. This is going to be the next world champion. You did it, kid. And uh, the next show I was on was a, was a house show in Poughkeepsie. And I got clotheslined by Batista. When I hit the mat, I felt something pop in my triceps. And it was extremely painful. And it swelled up. My hand swelled up instantly. 
it turned purple almost immediately, which is not normal, um, turning colors, and uh, I couldn't move my arm. So that night, uh, Dylan Hornswoggle and I went to um, Erie, Pennsylvania. We went to Erie, Pennsylvania, and I got an MRI. And the next morning, Stephanie called me, and she said, Hey, Ken, um, the news is in, and you tore your triceps, and you're going to be out for seven or eight months. Unfortunately, Taker, we still need to get the title off of Taker. So what we're going to do is we're going to send the private jet to pick you up, bring you to uh, Penn State, which is where Raw was, and Edgy's going to challenge you for the briefcase, and then he's going to go on to do tomorrow night what you were supposed to do and i didn't argue and uh i didn't think i've never thought arguing about little stuff like that is sure, you know, sure. appropriate i re- do remember thinking in the back of my head like well but i have a year to cash this thing in yeah right and i'm only going to be gone for seven or eight months why can't i just hold on to it but i but i didn't say it and uh, and i don't regret not saying it either i think that's douchey. yeah i was gonna say do you think it would have changed anything no and i think it, it it's douchey to do so. Sure. Um, but, yeah, basically I went to Penn State. Edge challenged me for the briefcase. Um, I couldn't move my arm to the point where they had it taped up and wrapped up, and I couldn't wrestle. So they had Edge come out as I was making my entrance. He came out, hit mm. me from behind, beat the snot out of me on the outside, rolled me in the ring, they rang the bell, and he hit me with the spear, one, two, three. And then, so... The next morning, I fly to Birmingham, Alabama, to meet with James Andrews, who does all the surgeries for WWE, and I don't, I don't know if he still does, but at the time, he was like one of the best surgeons. In the yeah, country. he was an absolute legend. And uh, like I remember sitting on his table and seeing posters and pictures from like Bo Teep operated on Bo Jackson and Brett Favre and just about everybody you could imagine in, in sports. And he came in and he, he looked at me and he says, so you tore your triceps, huh? And he starts feeling my triceps. And he just looked and he said, I, I don't think that's a tear. That doesn't feel like a tear to me. I don't feel, I don't feel it in there. Wow. And uh, he said, unfortunately, they did not send the MRI over. So we're going to have to do another MRI, but let's just do it to be sure. But I'm pretty sure that's not a tear. Sure enough, got the MRI results a little while later, and it was just a large hematoma. So it was basically, I had a bunch of blood vessels pop in my arm, and it just bled internally. It was a, a giant bruise, basically, is all it was. And I was, and he said, you'll be out for three to four weeks. And that's what they did. I went home, and I was, I sat at home for three, four weeks, and then I came back. And so I was, you know, MVP always says you were, a misdiagnosis away from being the world heavyweight champion. Was there ever any thought to circle back to any of the any of these original plans? Um, you know, I I don't know. I mean, no, I don't. I don't think. You know what? It, you know what it is in the WWE, just the wrestling world in general is when stuff like that happens. The the show needs to go on, mm-hmm. and they just figure out how to pick up the pieces and move forward. And they sort of do it without looking back. I sure. Think, you know? Yeah. A few more for you, Ken, as we start to wind down here. Uh, these days, you're the owner and head trainer of the Academy School of Professional Wrestling. 
uh, guys, it's the uh, theacademyprowrestling.com if you want to take a look into Ken's school. Uh, was opening a school for you just a natural progression, or is that something you always saw yourself doing? It was. I I started thinking about it when I was at TNA, but I felt even in my early days at TNA that I just I didn't have enough experience to, to do so. I, I was like, you know, I hadn't done it. In my opinion, I hadn't done enough. I hadn't been in the business for long enough to be able to tell people how to do it. So I just kind of held off. And then when, uh, when I left TNA, I just decided, you know, I really didn't have a whole lot of other options to be honest, but I still love the business. And, uh, and I, I think I didn't have a lot of options because my pride at the time was to, you know, I never reached out to WWE and I took the kind of negative attitude that, well, like they can call me, you know, um, and I opened the school with Sean Devari and we decided to, you know, I, I wanted to give people the opportunities that I never had. Like I said, my trainers weren't connected at all. They didn't know a whole lot. Um, and I, instead of having my students do what I did and not waste time. I don't want to say I was wasting time, but you know what I mean? Like take six years to figure it out. I wanted to give them an opportunity to shortcut as much as I could. And uh, I feel like I have students now that I have two students, at least two students who I believe could get hired by NXT right now and do well there and thrive. They still have a lot to learn, but you know, they're at, um, so yeah, that was that was my idea. Was I just want to give people opportunities and pass on the knowledge and uh, there you know there's things that I didn't like about the business. I still don't like about the business, and I don't do those things at the academy. You know, uh, we don't bully people. We don't. I don't try to weed the weak out at this at the school. Like I give everybody an opportunity, and some of the people that would have been weeded out at other places turned out to be great talents. Um, there was, there's been a few that actually, you know, it took three or four months. I, I remember when they came in the door, I thought there's no way this guy's going to make it. And three or four months later, the light bulb goes on and they clicked and they figured it out. Um, now I had one guy who was training with me for five or six months to be a wrestler and he could not take a bump. He, he was always landing on his lower back and he couldn't run the ropes and he just looked to quote Jim Cornette, like a monkey trying to fuck a football. <laughs> and he came to me five months in and he said, look, I love this business. I don't think being a pro wrestler is right for me. Can I transfer, transfer into training to be a ref? And sure enough, we trained him to be a ref and he's booked everywhere now. And he travels more than any of my other students. And he's, he's absolutely fantastic. And I think you don't, He's another guy that I have a couple refs that I think could make good refs in the WWE. Ken, you said you uh, like to give everyone an opportunity, and I appreciate that approach because people learn at a different pace. But you said, you know, when someone walks in right away, you kind of have an idea, okay, this guy's not going to make it, this guy is. Um, what do you look for in a potential student? Is it just that it factor that makes you think the light bulb's going to click fast? Or what, what is it that you notice right away in guys or girls? You know what? It's it's none of that. It's drive. I, I feel like you look at the course of the wrestling business, the history of the wrestling business, 
we have wrestlers that were successful of all shapes, sizes, colors, you know, types. Um, it's just, do they love the business? And do they try really, really hard? There have been guys that came in and I thought, like, this guy's going to be good. He's got a great look. He's very athletic. He gets the basic concepts down really early. And then he, a few months later, he plateaus and, uh, you know, doesn't go on. And then, and then a few months later, he quits. I've had that happen a lot. So, and I've had, I had one guy, he's not ready to have matches necessarily yet, but there was one guy that came in and he literally couldn't do a forward roll. And he trained for three or four months. He decided to go away, and I thought I was going to be the last of them. Um, and a couple months later, he came back. He re-enlisted. And it was like during that time away, he had been at the gym and been eating properly, and he figured it out. And now he's, he's having matches. He's gotten a ton better. So, you know, things like that, like uh, success is in the eye of the beholder. I've had students who literally dream of getting to the WWE one day, and I've had students who just want to blow off some steam and have fun. I've had people that just come to a camp to socialize. Um, I've had people that I think come to a camp to find their soulmate. You know, like uh, there's people come for all different reasons, and I'm okay with that. Like if Whatever your vision of success is, I will try to help you get there. Uh, Ken, last one from me. I just want to know, you said you you were trained and trained well, but maybe didn't have the connections. Now you're a trainer. Uh, what do you think of the WWE Performance Center? How does that, how does that do you think, change the business? How does it change uh, how training is done? Just what do you think of it? I think it's a complete game changer. I love it. Um, the fact that these these students, the people that go to NXT, they are able to spend as much time. They could spend probably 15 or 16 hours a day if they wanted to at the Performance Center. Um, from I, I, I believe they have like meal programs and stuff there. You know, from diet and nutrition to the working out aspect to their skull sessions where they go and they watch tapes. There's psychology sessions. I mean, there's just like so much going on. There's eight rings and they have the ring that's like a giant crash pad so that guys can try high risk maneuvers and things like that into, I mean, it's just it's awesome. I wish we would have had that at OVW. And if I had the budget, I definitely would open something like that, you know, here in Minnesota. Uh, lastly, Ken, um, just like with anything else, there's going to come a time when the door is going to be closed on professional wrestling. When that happens, what is the legacy of Ken Anderson? Uh, I, I don't know. It remains to be seen, and it's sort of one of those things that's be up to the viewer. You know, I, I hope that I, during my time, I was able to, as Vince would always say, put smiles on some people's faces. Um, hopefully... You know, I don't believe in an afterlife per se, but I think that if there is an afterlife, it's it's how we affect the people around us that are then able to continue affecting that change in others. And I guess, you know, I hope that I can do that. I hope I can have a positive mark 
I hope I have had a positive. If it ends tomorrow, I hope I've had a positive effect on the business. I know that I've made tons of mistakes. I've made just about every possible mistake you can make. Um, and for that, I'm able to tell my students, as we always want, you know, I want to do the same with my children with the mistakes that I've made growing up. You know, I want to prevent them from having to go through it. In the same sense, I want to prevent my students from having to go through the same sort of turmoil. All right, everybody, that was our interview with Ken Anderson. And, hey, we did not forget about those SmackDown tickets. If, you're, if you want to win the SmackDown tickets, you have to DM us on Twitter. Send us a direct message. The special word and the code word for this in honor of Mr. Anderson is microphone, M-I-C-R-O-P-H-O-N-E. There's no reason to spell it wrong. DM us. We're going to be giving away several pairs of SmackDown tickets this week, so DM us, and you will be in the running for SmackDown tickets on Friday, November 15th at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. That's it. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 